James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favouritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that, and shudder. You foolish person... Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. This is God's word. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, give you praise that you are a loving God, uh, our creator, uh, who made us and who calls us into relationship uh, with yourself. And Lord, we ask now that as we hear your words, that those words would uh, call those who do not know you into that relationship. And those who do know you, Lord, we ask that your words would strengthen our faith and trust in you. Uh, Lord, help us to examine our lives and to see where we stand with you and to really know you uh, and to really live for you uh, through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, according to uh, Bill Bryson, uh, the author, the travel author, uh, during the Victorian era, 
the fear of being buried alive was a widespread fear. Uh, the fear was in part due to a kind of paralysis known as catalepsy, in which a person would appear to be dead while actually being fully conscious. They were, they were kind of paralysed and they couldn't respond to uh, things that people would say. Uh, one lady, Eleanor Markham, came disastrously close to being buried alive. She was about to be buried uh, when suddenly anxious noises were heard from coming, in, uh, coming from inside the coffin. Uh, and they <laughs> quickly... Uh, changed the plans for the day. Uh, <laughs> I guess it was a party in the end. But, uh, but mercifully, uh, that doesn't happen these days because we have more rigorous uh, techniques for establishing whether a person is alive or dead. But at the time, for many people, that fear was real. Uh, Hans Christian Andersen, the famous author, was so terrified by the idea that he would sleep with a sign next to his bed which said, I'm only sleeping. Uh, and in 1899, can you believe this, an Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial was established in Britain. Move over RSPCA, the Association for the Prevention of Premature Burial uh, was established. Uh, it's a terrifying thought, isn't it, to, uh, to be alive and to have people think that you're dead. Uh, but James is actually here presenting us with quite the opposite picture. Uh, He's presenting us here with the idea that we might actually be dead when we think that we're alive. Uh, Not physically dead when we think that we're alive, but dead in the sense of spiritually dead when we think that we're alive. We might think that we're alive to God, that we know God, that we have a relationship with God, but actually we're dead and have no relationship with God at all. Uh, James wants us to know, he wants us to think about, he wants us to test whether we're really alive to God or whether we just think that we are and we're really just dead as a post. Uh, What James is talking about follows on from what we looked at last week. For those who were here, who was talking there about the idea of not just hearing but doing, the people, he says, who are really alive, who really hear God, who put his words into practice, those people are alive, those people who are dead hear only and don't put those words uh, into practice. Uh, Now, for such a serious topic, I think, that is being dead but thinking that we're alive, it seems strange at first that James begins with what we might consider a pretty innocuous issue. Uh, He begins with the issue of favouritism, which kind of on our level of thinking is maybe down here. He says in verse 1, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must not show favouritism. There it is. Believers in Jesus shouldn't show favouritism. And then he gives an example of what that kind of favoritism might look like. He says that someone rich might come into church, they're well-dressed, they're well-kept, you know, they, they, they rock up in, uh, in a murk or something like that, you see them coming through the door and you say, well, I'm going to show some attention to this person. Uh, you, you, you say to them, have this special seat, uh, you know, can I get you something to drink, uh, can, I, you know, can I pamper you, basically... Uh, and then at the same time, uh, a poor person comes in, someone they're not well-dressed, uh, you know, they're a bit shabby, uh, and you say to that person, well, look, you know, you leave them to their own devices, or if you do say anything, you say, well, you know, find yourself a seat, there might be some space on the floor, you can sit at my feet if you want, uh, just don't get in my way. Uh, James says, you show, uh, this rich person comes in, you show favouritism to them, and this poor person comes in and you show them special contempt. 
If you do that, he says, you're showing favoritism. You've thought to yourself, this rich person is better than this poor person. They're better than this poor person because of how much money they have, not because of who they are. But James says that's wrong. It's not just wrong because it's unjust. It's wrong because God is a God who loves the poor. Verse 5, listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised uh, those who love him? God has a special love and compassion for those who are particularly downtrodden. He has a special compassion and love for those who are despised in the eyes of the world. The people that we, that, that we think are nothing, God, they're precious in God's sight. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. And, and James is saying, if God has chosen those kinds of people to receive his grace and mercy in Jesus, then who are we to reject them? If God is receiving those people, then how can we turn them away? If God loves them, if God shows compassion to them, how can we treat them with contempt? To do that is to deny the grace and the mercy that we have received ourselves. But it seems that the people that James is writing to were doing exactly that. Being gracious to the rich and being contemptuous to the poor. And what's even more extraordinary, what's even more extraordinary is that according to James, the very same people who are, that they're showing favour to, these rich people, are the very people who are exploiting them. Verse 6, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? These Christians are so taken with the rich over the poor that they're letting themselves be taken advantage of. Uh, they're being exploited. They're being dragged into court. Uh, these, these rich people are even dishonoring and discrediting the name of Jesus. But the Christians in the church that James is writing to are captivated by these people. They're fawning over them. It's extraordinary, isn't it? It would almost be hard to believe if we didn't know that own experience in our own life, I think. That is, we're so captivated by the wealth and the success of other people that we're willing to be taken advantage of by them, taken advantage by them, in order that we might share in some of their glow. We don't even necessarily actually want their money. You know, we don't want the Merc uh, or the nice house. We just want to kind of be swept up in the glow of their life, in the beauty of their life. Uh, even though they treat us like rubbish uh, or treat us with disdain. It's easy enough, I think, for us to do, whether it's motivated by wealth or whether it's motivated by, motivated by other things, to show favoritism to people. But God says that's not right. We can't do that. It's not God's will for us. It's not the way that God acts towards people. And so it's an important question for us to ask. God wants us to ask this question. James wants us to ask this question. Do we show preference to some people over others? Do we show preference, in the first place, to those who are wealthy versus those who are poor? Do we fawn over the rich and then treat the poor with contempt? Uh, do we treat the rich and the middle class, even, with a kind of kindness that we're unwilling to extend to those who are poor? 
But I think the issue of partiality extends beyond just favouring the rich and ignoring the poor. In fact, uh, the more left-wing and socialist among us might be more inclined actually to show favouritism to the poor and to treat the rich with contempt. Uh, and to, to meet the rich person to, and to think to ourselves, well, they've just got wealthy by treating the, you know, by, by being a scumbag and being cruel to the poor. I'm not going to have anything to do with that person. Uh, and that would be just as wrong. It's, it's not just favouring the rich which is problematic, it's favouritism at all. Uh, other people look down their nose at, at those of other races. Uh, it might be Asians, it might be non-Asians, it might be people of African descent, it might be Aboriginal people. Uh, so, so it might be then that if an Aboriginal person was to come across your path, you might not even speak to them. Uh, if they came into the church, you wouldn't trust them. Uh, and you say things like, Aboriginal people can't be trusted. They're just a bunch of whatever it is. Of course, we always preface it, don't we, with those terrible words, I'm not racist, but... I think it was Freud who said, that's always a sure sign that whatever you're about to say is, uh, is absolutely true. I'm not racist, but. Uh, I'm not being mean, but. But we do it, don't we? It's so easy for us to do. To show favoritism to people because of their race, because of their class. It might be a convicted criminal who c comes across your path and you treat them like dirt, you know, because of what they've done. They might be doing everything in their power to, to remake their lives but you treat them with contempt. And of course, the white-collar criminal <laughs> who's wealthy, who's trying to, who is not interested in remaking their life, you treat with special honour. It might be someone of a different religion. Muslims often seem to bear the brunt of fear and partiality. God isn't calling us to agree with their religious convictions or to accept that uh, what they believe is uh, is the truth, but we can disagree with them strongly on the truth of God and still treat them with honour and dignity. Still treat them equally. Still treat them without contempt. God calls us to view the world differently to how we instinctively want to view the world, to how those around us want to view the world. We're not to view people in terms of what they can do for us or how they can help us climb the ladder of life. We're to see people as God sees them. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, uh, the new is here. Paul says he looks at the world differently, not at the external characteristics of people, their wealth and their poverty, but who they are in Christ. That is, they know Jesus, they're in Christ, they're a brother and sister. They don't know Christ then there's someone who needs to know the love of Christ and to become a brother and sister. We don't look at the world from a worldly point of view. We look at it through the lens of the gospel of Christ Jesus. So we ought not to show favoritism, uh, says James. But why is not showing favoritism such an issue? Now, the reason is because showing favoritism is fundamentally a failure, like everything else, to live as God intended for us to live. James says in Verse 8, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favouritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. So James is quoting from Jesus himself, from his brother. Uh, Jesus summarised the law 
by saying that we're to love God in the first place with all our heart and mind and soul and strength and we're to love uh, our neighbours as ourselves. The command to love God and our neighbour, says Jesus, crystallises what it is that God requires from us. But James is here focusing not on the first part, on loving God with all our heart, but on uh, loving our neighbour. And he says uh, that to show favouritism fundamentally is a failure to love our neighbour. We're not just to love the rich people around us, or the people like us, we're to love the poor people around us as well. So if you show favouritism, then you're failing to obey Jesus' command. Uh, You've dishonoured God, you've sinned against God, and you've lived in a way which dishonours God and dishonours the people that he has made. So if you're a person then who shows favouritism, if you look at your life and you go, yeah, actually... I do show, treat some people with special honour and others with, with special contempt. Uh, if that's you, then the question is, how are you going to deal with that? The way that you might be inclined to deal with it might look something like this. You might say, well, it's not right to show favouritism, but you know what? It's not that bad. On the scale of things, favouritism is way down the bottom. I can, I can probably get by with just letting that one go. But James says, that's not good enough. You can't just go, well, it's not murder. No, it matters. He, he says in verse 10, for whoever keeps the law, the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. It's no defense to say, well, it's just favoritism. Because if you break God's law in one way, you're condemned as having broken it all. It's no defense to say, well, I've only uh, committed murder and not adultery. Imagine that. Imagine uh, someone on trial for murder. They're in front of the judge, and the judge says to the defendant, What do you have to say in your defense? well, I've never committed adultery. How can you convict me of murder? (laughs) The judge would say, what on earth are you talking about? It doesn't work like that. It's a bit like, you know, it's a bit bit like going into a store, you know, a clothes store, and, you you know, you've you've walked in with a cup of coffee from the local coffee shop, and you accidentally spill it on one of the shirts. Uh, And and, and the store attendant, you know, discovers, and they say, look, I'm sorry, you have to pay for that shirt. And you say to them, it's still good. I haven't spilled it on all of the shirt. It's just down the front. Look, the back and the sleeves are still fine. What do you, how can you expect me to pay for that? It doesn't work like that, does it? Because once you've stained it in one part, the whole thing's ruined. And James is saying it's a bit like that with us and the law. You can't just say, well, it's only one bit. Because once we've broken God's law in one way, we're, we're, we've defaced God in every way. It's, it's ruined. We're ruined. We're defaced. The people who we sin against are defaced. No, it doesn't work like that. We can't ignore favoritism uh, and pretend that it doesn't matter, pretend that it's not serious. James says it does matter. He says in verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs 
over judgment. So here's the confronting idea, and it's taught not just here, but throughout the whole Bible. The idea is this, you and I will be judged in accordance with the kind of life that we've lived. Let me say that again, in case you heard me right. You and I will be judged in accordance with the kind of life that we've lived. How we live matters. James is not saying here, if we're good enough, God will accept us, and if we're not good enough, God will reject us. He's not talking about a bar that we need to get over. James is not talking about obeying the law that condemns us for not meeting a perfect standard. He's talking, please note, about obeying the law of liberty, that is, the law of Jesus Christ, the law or or the gospel. Uh, And the gospel includes not just the shape of how we're to live, that is, the shape of how we're to live modelled through Jesus himself, but it also includes forgiveness for our sins. Uh, The law of liberty also includes the power through God's Spirit uh, to transform us to be like Jesus. So when James says that we'll be judged according to the law of liberty, the question is not how perfect are you, but the question is what evidence is there in your life that you have come to really know and understand the gospel? What evidence is there in your life that you really know Jesus Christ? James is saying we'll be judged by that because if, if you know Jesus, if you've come to understand the gospel, then your life will be different. There'll be evidence of that. As Jesus says, a tree is known by its fruit. That is, if you see an apple tree covered in beautiful apples, you know that it's alive. You don't sort of look at it and go, oh, well, it's covered in apples. Maybe it's dead. Maybe that's just, maybe it's like a fluke. Uh, you know, and if you see an apple tree that's stone dead, you know, there's not, it's not even a single leaf on it, uh, that's been like that for six months, you don't go, oh, I don't know. Maybe it's still alive. You go, that tree's dead. I'm going to rip it out of the garden. A tree is known by its fruit, says Jesus. And, and James is saying the same thing here. We'll be judged not according to whether we've met the perfect standard, but will be judged on the basis of the evidence of the faith in our lives. Because faith changes us. And in particular, James says, that will be clear in the area of mercy. If we've received God's mercy in Jesus, then God's mercy will flow out of our lives. We'll be merciful people. In other words, mercy is not a matter of indifference. If there's a lack of mercy and kindness in your life, then there's a deep problem. James is saying it's, it's maybe an indication that the tree is dead, uh, that there's no root in, in Jesus Christ. We should live as people who are going to be judged with mercy. Uh, and if you fail to live a merciful life, that means you've probably failed to grasp God's mercy. If there's no love for your neighbour, uh, if there's only fawning over those who are kind of rich and, uh, and beautiful and successful, uh, if there's only fawning over those who can help you get ahead in life, If there's only love, as Jesus says, for those who love you back, what good is that? But if you've grasped the gospel, then your life will be different and and you'll be able to see that. Uh, Your love will will be different to before. You'll you'll love where you never loved before. Uh, You'll be kind where before there was only selfishness. 
Sure, all of us show favoritism uh, from time to time in how we treat people. It's part of our sinful nature. And God says, that's not right. But those of us who live according to the gospel won't just shrug that off, that sin off and, and say, well, it doesn't matter that much. But we'll deal with it at the cross and we'll say, God, there is favoritism in my life. You've got to forgive me for this. And as you keep trusting in Jesus and as you keep turning back to the cross, you'll find that that favoritism diminishes. You'll find a a kind of growing disregard for the status symbols of the world. That doesn't matter to you anymore. You really don't care about whether someone's rich or poor. That's not what is the the kind of the guiding light in your life. You don't really care about whether they're well regarded or not. You don't care about how they can help you. In fact, more and more you love and care about people, not for any reason except that they have been created by God and need to know Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing to see, isn't it? It's a beautiful thing to see in the life of someone who knows Jesus Christ, to see someone who loves the down and out, who loves the poor. And I I think there are people like that in this church who have a tremendous compassion for those that nobody else in society wants, wants to care about. And that's a trim, that, that, is, that is a miracle. It's a miracle of the gospel. And on the last day, God will see the, that fruit and say, you know what? There was evidence in your life of a living faith. I know your mind because it was on display. It was on display in your life. And what's true of mercy ought to be true uh, in other areas of our lives, there, there ought not to be other pockets of indifference to sin in our lives. No, if we really know Jesus, we won't be content just to live with sin in our lives, but we'll keep dealing with it at the cross. God, is calling, in calling us to himself, is calling us to forsake sin and cling to Jesus, which doesn't mean that we'll be perfect, but it does mean that we'll be growing more and more to be like him. Well, how does all that fit uh, with faith? How does the idea that God will judge us on the basis of our lives fit with the idea that we're saved by trusting in Jesus and not by what we do? We've always already thought a little bit about that, but it seems that James wants to drill a little bit more into that. Uh, Is there a kind of level, for instance, that God gets us to and then we need to get the rest of the way? No, James says, rather, what happens is that what we do flows out of our faith. It flows out of our relationship with Jesus. He continues uh, in verse 14 with with that idea when he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. James says that if you claim to know Jesus, but your life isn't changed in any way, then you're that dead tree. That shows that your faith is empty. It's dead. Real faith in Jesus is living faith. It always acts. It always changes the way that we live. Uh, James says, he gives that illustration, it's like someone uh, saying to a person who's hungry and shivering, be warm and well-fed, you know, and then sends them off without doing anything about it. Unless you actually give them food and clothes, your words are just an empty platitude, aren't they? You know, be warm and well-fed, brother, Go (laughs) go off into the cold and die. And in the same way, there are many people who have the words, 
I know Jesus. But actually, there's no reality to that. It's just an, it's just an empty platitude. Yep, I know him. Yep. But their life bears no, that bears no reality in their life. Uh, it's, a bit of, it's a bit like there's lots of countries in the world that claim to be democracies, but are anything but democracies. They're authoritarian uh, dictatorships. It's not just what people claim, which is important, but how that claim is worked out or, or evidenced in practice. It's always a bad sign whenever a country includes the democratic, you know, something or other, or the republic of something or other in their title. It's always a sure sign that they're not what they claim to be. It's not what is in their title, it's not what they claim to be which is important, but what is in evidence uh, in their political system. And so James says, it's not what you say that confirms your faith as much as how your faith in Jesus has changed you. So verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God, good, even the demons believe that and shudder. So for some people, their faith is just a set of ideas. It's just a, sort of a bunch of facts. God is one, you know, God is three in one, three persons in one. Jesus is God's son. Jesus died for sins. Jesus rose from the dead. You might know all the right facts, but if you haven't entrusted your life to Jesus, then it's all dead, dead knowledge. People who have really entrusted their lives to Jesus, who've received forgiveness through his death, and life through his resurrection, those people are transformed by the Holy Spirit to be like Jesus. To prove that, James gives two examples from the Old Testament, Abraham and Rahab. His point is the same with both, but we'll focus on the first one, which is Abraham. He says in verse 20, You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Do you want evidence? Here it is. Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar. You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. James says that Abraham's righteousness was displayed in how he obeyed God. Now, the particular instance that he's thinking of is in Genesis 22 when God told Abraham, incredibly, that he had to sacrifice uh, his only son Isaac. A Abraham had been waiting for years to have a son and God had finally uh, given him a son, he'd given him Isaac and all of a sudden God turns up and says to Abraham, you've got to sacrifice your only son Isaac. And Abraham's thinking, wow, what's going on? Uh, Abraham was thrown by what God was calling him to do, but he trusted God and he went, he, he went to go ahead with it and just as he was about to do what God had asked him to do, God stopped him and said, you know, provided uh, a substitute. It was God's test, you see, of whether Abraham really trusted God. And James says that Abraham's actions were a fulfillment, a fulfillment of what God had said to Abraham decades earlier. The word fulfillment, uh, the word fulfillment that James uses is an important word. Fulfillment is the kind of word that the Bible uses to talk about God's promises. 
James is saying that what happened in Genesis 22 was a fulfillment of something that God had promised earlier. And James is telling us as well what it was that God fulfilled. What was the word of promise? The word of promise was in Genesis 15. God had promised Abraham that he would bless Abraham, that Abraham uh, would, would be the father of many nations, that through Abraham God would put the world right. And Abraham believed God and took God in his word and entrusted himself to God. And we're told that God saw that faith, that trust in, in Abraham, and as James quotes, it was credited to him as righteousness. Before Abraham had been tested in Genesis 22, before Abraham had obeyed, Abraham had trusted God, he believed God, he'd taken God at his word, he'd put his life in God's hands. And on the basis of that trust, God said to him, you are righteous. But James wants us to understand that those words are not a recognition of what Abraham was in himself. Abraham wasn't righteous. You only have to read Genesis to work that out. He was, he was a flawed man. He'd stuffed lots of things up. But God says it, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Those words are not just a declaration of, of a new relationship between God and Abraham. They're not just a declaration of a new status. James wants us to understand that those words are also a word of promise. It was a promise of, God, of what God would work out in Abraham's life. And James says that that promise began to be fulfilled in what Abraham did with his only son Isaac. When we believe God... When we believe God that salvation comes through no one else but Jesus, and when we entrust our lives to Jesus as our Saviour and our King, God declares us as righteous. We're brought into a right relationship with God, a proper relationship with God. But it isn't just a declaration. It's not just a status. It's a promise that will be fulfilled as well. A promise which God increasingly fulfills as the Spirit makes the life of Christ in us more and more a reality. We're righteous by promise. That's a great title for a book, isn't it? You should Google that. We're righteous by promise. Uh, as has often been said, faith alone saves, but faith, the faith which saves is never alone. Faith alone saves, but the faith which saves is never alone because what God promises us, what God declares us to be, he works out in our lives. We're saved by believing in Jesus, but we're changed by that faith as well. And that flows out and is evidenced in our life. Now, that doesn't mean that you and I become perfect straight away. That's abundantly clear the more time you spend in a church. It doesn't mean that all our desires for evil will leave us. Uh, we'll sometimes feel like being kind to the rich and being mean to the poor. Uh, we'll still be tempted to be greedy. We'll still sometimes long for things which God says we can't have. We'll long for things which are not part of God's good plan and purpose for us. That's the effect of still living in a fallen world. But if we know Jesus, if we trust in Jesus, then God is working out his righteousness in our lives. We won't stay where we are. In his book, The Great Work of the Gospel, John Ensor, I've mentioned this before, John Ensor distinguishes between sheep and pigs by noting that while sheep stumble... 
in the mud and they get dirty, they don't stay there. They pick themselves up and they keep going in the direction that they are going. They keep following the shepherd. Whereas pigs live in the mud. They live there, they stay there, and they're content to be there. Sheep stumble, but pigs wallow. You might stumble into sin, you might keep stumbling into sin. But if you keep getting up and turning away from sin and turning to Jesus and putting your trust in him, then that's a sign that you really belong to him. That's an evidence, that's a fruit. It's a fruit of the gospel. Because people who really know Jesus keep turning away from sin and keep taking hold of him. What God has declared them to be, righteous in Christ, he has promised to make them holy in Christ. And he is working that out in their lives. But on the other hand, if you keep falling into sin and you keep kind of living there and you're content to be there, uh, you might even hold on to it and embrace it and justify it. Justify it to yourself and justify it to other people. Then that's a sign as well, isn't it? That's, a, that's another evidence. An evidence not of a living faith, but of a dead faith. It's a sign that you haven't really come to understand the gospel. You haven't grasped why Jesus died. Why did Jesus die? He died not just to forgive you for sin, but to deliver you from it, to end it, to destroy it, to conquer it, to put it away. So here's the question that we need to ask ourselves. Here's the question that you need to ask yourself and I need to ask myself. What evidence is there in your life that you know Jesus? What fruit is there that shows that in Jesus God has made you a good tree? Now, that might be hard to discern at first, mightn't it? You might kind of go, oh, well, there's, a bit of, there's a bit of dead fruit, and there's a bit of, seems like there's a bit of real fruit as well. You need to pray that God would help you to see the fruit of his work in your life. And if there's no fruit, the remedy is not to kind of plow your effort into being a better person. The remedy is to really close with Jesus Christ to come before God and say, God, look, I can't, I can't see anything here. There's no fruit. It looks dead. I look dead. You've got to rescue me. Uh, Jason Summers from St. Andrews preached on, on John 15 a few weeks ago and he said a really helpful thing uh, which, which is, just, is very, very helpful to remember. He said, he pointed out in John 15 that Jesus never commands his disciples to bear fruit. He commands them to abide in him. And we need to remember that. The remedy to bearing fruit is not to work hard to produce fruit. The remedy to bearing fruit is to anchor ourselves in Jesus, to plead for his forgiveness and his grace uh, and his mercy in, Jesus, in, 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 in the cross. A life of faith, James wants us to know, will be a life which bears the fruit of faith, a life which bears love for God a life which bears love for our neighbour, a life which doesn't show favouritism, and a life which lives at the foot of the cross. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we want to come to you with uh, empty hands. Uh, because I think most of us know the reality of favouritism. Lord of wanting so much to share in the success and the beauty and the good life and the wealth of those who are rich and successful and 
powerful and elite. Lord, we want so much to be part of their lives uh, and for them to be part of our lives. And in doing that, often we tread on the poor and we shake them off and we shake the dust off our feet in their face. Uh, And we bemoan the demands that the poor place on us. Lord, please forgive us for that. That's not right. You call us to love our neighbour and you call us to be merciful as you've been merciful. But Lord, thank you so much that there is forgiveness and grace in the death of Jesus Christ. That all our sins, whether it's murder or adultery or favouritism, are cast into the depths of the sea. And Lord, thank you that there's not only forgiveness in the cross, but there's power in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that resurrection power comes to us through your Holy Spirit. And you work in us a new life, a right life, a righteous life. Oh Lord, do that work in each of us. Help us to anchor ourselves in Jesus Christ and to no more be the same, but to be changed forever. And Lord, give us the eyes to see the evidence of that, to see the fruit and to know with absolute confidence that Christ is in us and we are in him. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.